Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I left home, and I was coming down Highway 80, and I was headed towards the church and had a full day of meetings and things that uh, I was planning to be a part of. And I was on the phone with a friend, and uh, I got a beep, and I looked at my phone, and it was my mom. Now, if your mom is anything like my mom, my mom will accidentally call me about six times every other day. Uh, so I, I chalked it up to mom's not meaning to call, and if it's important, uh, then she'll, she'll call right back. So I, I just kept talking and kept driving down the road. And as soon as my mom stopped calling, uh, the next person that called immediately was Allison. And I thought, well, that's, that's odd timing. So I, I told my friend, I said, Allison's beeping in. I'm, I'm gonna check and see what this is all about. And, and Allison, she was getting ready to go into the operating room and do a case. And she said, you need to call your mom right now. Something's going on with your dad. So I call my mom and my mom is obviously emotional on the other end of the line. And she said, your dad has lost consciousness a couple of different times. One of those times he hit his head. The paramedics are here and they're afraid that it might be as hard because my dad had already suffered a couple of minor heart attacks over the past few years. And she said, the plan is they're taking him straight from the ambulance to, to the helicopter and they're taking him to UT Knoxville. And I said, okay, um, just keep me posted so I, I know what I need to do. And um, so I figured it would be about a 20, 25 minute flight from Middlesbrough to UT Knoxville by a helicopter. And by the time that my mom got there, probably, you know, 50 minutes to an hour. So I said, just let me know what I need to do so I can, you know, put everything in line and, and I'll be there if I need to be. I thought that it would be as, as it had been a couple of other times that they would take him, take him to the cath lab, find a little bit of blockage and put a stent in and in a day, you know, everything is, is back to normal. Well, about an hour later, uh, my mom called and, and I couldn't hear what she was saying. And then the phone, the phone line went dead. And then my aunt called and she said, you need to get here immediately. There's something really, really wrong with your dad. And he, he'd started bleeding profusely in the, in the emergency room. And they were getting ready to take him to an emergency scope of his stomach to find out what was going on. And he's a heart patient, so he's on blood thinners and bleeding is a thing. And blood thinners, it's just the recipe for a perfect disaster. So I got Allison and Shepard and Grayson and, and we went to Knoxville. And of course, because of COVID, some of you all have experienced this. Um, you can't get all the family in. There were already two people up there. That was the limit. So I did what you know anybody would do in my situation. I pulled the pastor card. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, I am a pastor. And, and so they said, okay. And I, I made my way up to the, to the floor where my dad was at, which was critical care and my mom and my dad's sister, my aunt was in the hallway. And so I waited with them for a few moments and the doctor came out and he had obviously been working on my dad. And, and he looked at my mom and says, Mrs. Barton, uh, your husband is bleeding a lot. And, and by the tone of his voice, my mom could tell this was not good. And, and she got emotional and, and the doctor kind of started worrying about her. So I, I looked at my aunt and kind of gave her the, the look, hey, take my mom down the hall and let me talk to the doctor. So I, I looked at the doctor and said, hey, let's just talk straight. Let's just talk honest with uh, each other. I said, on a scale of one to 10, how serious is this? And he said, it's a 13. And I said, oh. And I said, next question, do you expect my dad to die? And he said, I don't think your dad's gonna make it another 30 minutes. We've sent him down, down the hall for a Hail Mary type of thing. And I just don't see a way. We couldn't find the bleeding. There's a lot of blood, blood thinners. And, and I'm just really sorry, but I, 
this is not going to turn out good. And, and of course, he was very gracious about it. And I went down, got on the elevator, found my mom and my aunt and pulled them in one of those little private consultation areas. And, and I sat down and I, I got in front of them and they were sitting there and I, I was sitting in a chair. And, and I, I told my mom exactly what the doctor had told me. And I said, they're not expecting dad to make it and we need to prepare ourselves. And, and then I started talking about what we believe and, and why in a moment like this, it's important to remember that we believe that, that God is and God exists and he's good even in a moment like this and that dad is a person of faith and that means something. And, and then, then we prayed together and after everybody kind of got their emotions back in check because it was a real emotional moment, um, my mom and my dad's sister, they, they excused themselves to the restroom and, and I remember I leaned back in the chair in that little bitty waiting room all by myself. And, and I remember so clearly saying out loud, God, I really need all of this stuff that we believe to be true. I really want it to be true. And, and right now I really, really hope it's true. You see, when it comes to faith, for some people, it seems as though believing just comes easy. You've seen these people. They just believe. They, they believe that God exists seemingly without difficulty. They heard it. They grew up in church or someone told them and it was like, yes, I believe. And it was like, there was no difficulty. Faith just came easy to them. They believe. They believe that the world around them, it, it's not accidental, neither is it incidental because they actually believe. They actually believe that there's a superseding purpose to everything that happens. And they seemingly believe that without flinching. It's like, it doesn't even matter what's going on. They just believe it. They believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, was somehow the bodily incarnation of God himself and that his death had some kind of cosmic significance that was punctuated and validated by his resurrection. And it's like they believe it without even wavering. I mean, it's just, yes, I believe that. But for others, for some people, faith doesn't come that easy. Uh, for some people, faith seems like a very difficult proposition to lay hold to. The idea of God, that God exists, it sounds attractive, but not convincing. A, a world where one day ultimate purpose, divine purpose, God's purpose will win the day. It's comforting, but not entirely persuasive. Uh, the idea that Jesus, him crucified and raised from the dead, that in some way, him being raised from the dead, that it saves us from death. It's something they find emotionally compelling, but not necessarily intellectually conclusive. And it's those two ends of the spectrum that really brings me to what I want to talk about today and what I want us all to spend some time thinking about today. And it's these two things right here. It's faith and doubt. And everybody here, we've had some interaction with faith or we've entertained faith or we've got faith. And then there's doubt and we've, we've all ran into doubt from time to time. And when it comes to faith and doubt, if I could just be honest with you, and maybe I'll give you a little bit of a warning, a bit uncomfortably honest with you for just a moment. When it comes to faith and when it comes to my faith, as I look back over my life, faith has seldom come easy to me. And when it comes to my faith, if I'm just talking to you and I'm just being honest with you, I would have to tell you that when it comes to my faith, I doubt. Sometimes I doubt 
a lot. Sometimes I feel as though I have more questions than I do answers. Sometimes, and at sometimes in places and seasons in my life, my doubt feels like a mental plague that haunts my soul. There have been moments and there have been times and there have been seasons where I feel as though my faith might be buckling under the weight of what I would call the complexities of life. There have been moments, there have been times, there have been those instances where I wondered if my faith, if it, if it was cracking because of those emotionally unsatisfying answers to those emotionally disturbing questions that I carry around. And if I could even be a bit more candid, sometimes I doubt God. Sometimes I doubt if he's there. Sometimes I doubt if he's good. Sometimes I've wondered, there's been moments where I've wondered if there's rhyme and reason and a purpose behind all the pain that's in our world, if there is a divine design. At times I have read through the scriptures and I love the scriptures. I've read through the scriptures and I read about miracles, things that I've never seen before with my own eyes. And I have to scratch my head and breathe deeply because I'm like, I, sometimes I just don't know what to do with it. Stories of a woman out of curiosity looking back and she's turned to a pillar of salt. I, I just find troublesome. I find uh, problematic. Uh, the fact that a man found his strength from his hair. Now, I know some of you, you don't have any hair. You can't even relate to that. But the fact that there was a man who found his strength in his hair, I'm like, what? And that same man killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass, and he killed a lion with his own hands. And it makes me scratch my head, and, and sometimes it just makes me like, I, I don't know what to do with it. Sometimes it's hard for me to imagine what life after death is like. Sometimes I doubt, and, and I imagine, I imagine it's true that if you're honest, and if we're all honest, that you do too. That there are moments when you allow yourself to think about it. Now, sometimes some of you, you may not allow yourselves to think about it because it's just too uncomfortable. It takes you in a place that you don't want to go. There's times that my doubt, it's minimal and it's manageable. It's driving down the road and it's looking up to the sky and it's thinking, do I really believe all of this that I say I believe? And, and then in a moment, I'm able to, to talk to myself and I'm able to think through it. And so it's minimal, it's manageable. But then there's time that doubt, it's troublesome and it's terrifying. Like sitting in a waiting room at the University of Tennessee Hospital, wondering, needing, hoping that it's all true with a question mark. Once upon a time, my doubts made me feel defeated. I, I grew up in a church where they had testifying time. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, just call yourself blessed. Uh, but at the end of the service, uh, they would say, anybody got a testimony? Anybody got anything they want to say? And sometimes some of the old timers, just, just great men and women, you know, salt of the earth. They would get up and they would talk about life and they would talk about their faith. And sometimes they would talk about their faith in, in ways that would just make me wonder, do I even have faith? It, it sounded like their faith was just so unwavering, that their faith was so unflinching, that they never staggered, they, they never doubted. And, and to listen to some Christians talk about their faith, I just kind of felt defeated because I knew how I thought and I knew how I felt and, and my faith felt inferior some way. Uh, there were times that my doubts made me question, do, do I have faith at all? And, and how much faith do you have to have 
to be in? How much faith do you have to have to be a Christian? How much faith do you have to have for heaven and all of that? And we'll talk about that in a few weeks, so make sure you're here. But do I even have faith if I've got all of this doubt? And maybe there have been times in your life where you felt the same way. Maybe for some of you, that's the way you feel right now. Some of you, that's how you feel and you've never spoken it out loud to another person because you're afraid to. You're afraid of what they may think. You're afraid if you put words to those thoughts that you're just not sure what will happen because of it. Maybe your doubt, like my doubt has done in the past, that it caused you to question the legitimacy of your faith and, and you just thought, well, I don't have faith because I've got all of these doubts and there's no way I can be a person of faith if I've got these questions, these doubts. Maybe your unanswered questions, because you know, if you're like me, you've got a lot of them. There's just a lot of unanswered questions. It made you think that you were not a candidate for faith, that you couldn't call yourself a person of faith until you got all that stuff wrapped up and you know, nice, neat little bow on it. And because you haven't, you just like, I, I, just, I, I just don't think I can call myself a person of faith. Maybe you thought that doubt was what was standing between you and faith, or worse yet, you thought that doubt was what was standing between you and God. But there's good news if we understand what we need to understand about this, this idea, this subject, this topic. Having doubt is not evidence of not having faith. Having doubt is not the evidence of not having faith, nor is it the evidence of not being able to have faith. Uh, doubt is not the roadblock in between you and faith. That, that's not how it works. So having doubt is not the evidence that you don't have faith. And so we need to understand faith because I'm afraid that a lot of people inside the church, outside the church, they are fundamentally flawed in how they define faith. And their definition of faith, the way that they would describe faith or think of faith is actually an obstacle for faith. And it causes them to be reluctant to entertain faith or embrace faith because they just misunderstand it. And the more that we understand faith, the better we are able to process our doubts and to know how to actually think about our doubts. And for me, I think that understanding what faith is begins with what faith isn't. So I'm just gonna give these to you real quick because I've, I've given these to you before, but this is so important, especially if you're kind of new to our church, because you may have a misunderstanding of faith. Faith isn't a feeling. Faith isn't a feeling. Uh, if you grew up like I did, it was really easy to think that faith was a feeling. Like you felt something, that meant you were a person of faith and that meant that you felt God and experienced God, you were in a relationship with God. But feelings, feelings are not a measuring stick for faith. They never have been, they were never supposed to be, and they never should be. Feelings, as all of us know when we think about it, feelings are not an accurate gauge of reality. And have you ever convinced yourself because of how you felt that somebody was mad at you? Like, like I, I think they're mad at us. I, I don't think they like us anymore. I, 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 think, I think, I don't know, whatever happened at that last dinner, whatever happened on that last trip, I don't know, something happened. I just feel like, and it's like, you know, you, you just, all those feelings now creates a whole reality for you. And then the next time you're with them, you know, you may mention it, but probably if you're like most, you don't. And, and but everything's normal. And it's like, what? They like me. They really like me. They, they, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong. And it's like, I convinced myself of that whole thing. Or you ask them about it and they're like, no, no, not at all. What's, what's, I don't understand. So feelings, feelings are not always a reflection of reality. And trying to rely on our feelings to either confirm or validate the quality or the presence of faith is not useful and it's not helpful. Matter of fact, it's quite 
harmful. A person who says, well, I prayed and I just didn't feel anything, or I went to church and I sat there, but I didn't feel anything. You know, I went forward and I, I did what they said I should do, but I didn't feel anything. I took communion, I got baptized, but I just don't feel anything. And so you think that a lack of feelings means a lack of faith, but feelings aren't faith. And faith isn't a feeling. Second thing is this, that faith isn't a force. Uh, a lot of people talk about the power of faith, right? The power of faith. Almost as if faith is this force that can cause good things to happen and ward off bad things from happening. It's like a hedge to keep out the bad. It's like a golden key to open up the doors to what's good. That, that faith is such a force that it can almost force God to do something. Like if you have enough faith and, and you've got enough force in that faith, then, then you can see someone healed or, or you can see someone's situation be changed. And the circumstances be reversed because faith is like this force. And the more faith that you have, the better chance that it's going to happen. But that's not what Christian faith is at all. That's not even what the New Testament leads us to believe about it. Uh, faith isn't assurance that you're going to get your prayer answered. It just isn't. It's not the assurance that you're going to get God to do what you want him to do. So faith is not a force. Faith isn't a magic fixer. It just, it, it doesn't fix what's wrong with life. There's still pain. There's still disappointment. That there's still, you know, all of this disillusionment, all this betrayal that everybody has to deal with at some point in time. There's setbacks. There, there's all of this bad. There's negative. And, and faith doesn't insulate any of us from that. People of faith still have people they love die young. People of faith still have people they love who die and didn't get well. Matter of fact, throughout history, people who have suffered the most sometimes have been people of faith because faith is not a magic fixer. But this is really where I wanna zero in on because this is really where this introduces us to what we're gonna be talking about today and for the next few weeks. Faith isn't certainty. Faith is not certainty. If your idea of faith is 100, 1,000%, no shadow of doubt, that's faith. If that's your idea of faith, I believe you're gonna be disappointed because faith isn't certainty. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. I mean, this is just, to me, this is staggering. The honesty of this is just staggering. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 13 at verse 12. He said, now we, including himself, now we see things imperfectly, imperfectly. On this side of the plane of eternity, we see things imperfectly. So there's no perfect vision. We see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections. He says, it's like trying to put everything together, like you're looking at a puzzle in a mirror and you're, it's kind of hazy and fuzzy, but yet you're trying to put it all together. And he says, have you ever felt like life and faith and putting it all together is a bit like a puzzle and it's like, this doesn't fit and this doesn't seem to fit. He says, I know how you feel. It's like a puzzling reflection in a mirror. And then he says this, the apostle Paul who wrote nearly half of the New Testament, all that I know, all that I know is now partial and incomplete. So he says, I, I don't have perfect clarity. And this is why Paul would make the case that we walk by faith and not by sight. And when you walk by faith, there's no such thing as 100%, 1,000% certainty. Faith learns to live with a certain amount of unanswered questions. Faith learns to survive even within an ethos of mystery. Faith is okay with mystery. Faith learns to be okay with unanswered questions because it's just the nature of life to know that there's gonna be unanswered questions and there's gonna be emotionally unsatisfying answers to some of our really important questions. But faith, faith understands, true faith, Christian faith, faith understands 
that it can survive, that it can continue to breathe, even when it doesn't have certainty, even when it doesn't have perfect clarity. And this is why this is important, because the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Because if you have certainty, if you have sight, you don't need faith. If you have faith, you don't need certainty. But if you have certainty, you don't need faith because it's the opposite. Now, wherever there is certainty, there's some dangerous things that lurks in the shadows. Uh, wherever someone is certain, there's dogmatic people. And dogmatic people can't be reasoned with. If you've ever tried to reason with a dogmatic person, they just can't be reasoned with. Uh, certainty is what makes people close-minded. It's like, I'm not gonna talk about it. I already know, I've already made up my mind. I, I, I'm not gonna talk about that. And when we're certain, we stop asking questions because we know. When we're certain, we stop being curious because we know. When we're certain, we stop being concerned. We stop investigating because we are certain. And if we think that faith is getting to a place where we're 100%, 1,000% certain, and I've got to figure everything out perfectly before I can embrace faith, then you have a misunderstanding of what faith is. Faith isn't certainty. Someone defined faith like this, that at least the, the origins of faith, the genesis of faith, is being concerned and being curious about what is ultimately true, about ultimate reality that that really is the beginning nature of faith. And Christians, we believe that ultimate truth and ultimate reality, we believe it's God. So wherever there is someone who is curious, wherever someone is concerned about what is ultimately true and ultimately real, they are already in the beginning stages of faith because faith is being curious and faith is being concerned. And as Christians, we are never intimidated, nor are we concerned, or nor, nor are we threatened by truth because we believe that the origin of all truth is God, that God is the embodiment of truth. So wherever the truth leads, we're okay with that because we believe that truth leads us back to God who is the author of truth. Another philosopher wrote that whoever is willing to earnestly reflect on the meaning of life, whoever is willing to earnestly deal with the meaning of life, ask those questions, be curious, be concerned, that faith is just out of their reach. So faith isn't certainty. And, and this, faith isn't the absence of doubt. Uh, matter of fact, uh, one author called faith and doubt twin brothers, twin sisters. Um, they actually hang out with each other. They're kind of always together, faith and doubt. Uh, doubt is what fuels curiosity. Uh, doubt is what really begins to be the genesis of all of our questions. Uh, our questions often come out of our doubt. It's our motivation to investigate. It's like, I, I need to know more about that. I, I don't feel like I understand that. So I need, to, I need to find something out about it. I need to have a conversation. I need to read a book. I need to listen to something. Doubt, when we understand that there is a benefit in doubt, when we leverage the benefit of the doubt, it keeps us from assuming that we know everything that we need to know. Have you ever had to try to have a conversation with somebody who already knew everything they thought they needed to know? You ever heard somebody say, well, you can't tell them anything. Or in these parts, you can't tell them nothing. Can't tell them nothing. Because they already know everything. They're know-it-all. It's doubt that keeps us honest enough to admit, hey, I could be wrong. But it keeps me humble enough to admit that you could be right. 
It keeps us from accepting lousy answers to important questions, and there are lots of those. It keeps us from moving away from the truth, but it keeps us moving towards the truth so that we don't settle for a very costly lie. Now, this is a perspective that's a, it's different. It's different than many of us grew up with. It's, it's different than most of us were introduced to. This is a perspective. This is a perspective that's entirely different for some of us from what we've believed up until this point. Because we thought that doubt was the enemy of faith. And many of us are accustomed to the line of thinking that says, you know what, when it comes to faith, there's really two disconnected things. There's two disconnected categories and two categories only. And this is how most of us grew up thinking. There's belief and there's unbelief. There's believers and there's unbelievers. And you're either one or the other. You've got your foot totally in one or your foot totally in the other. You're a card carrying member of this or that. You either have faith or you have no faith. You either believe or you don't believe. You're, you're either here or you're there. That's how most of us grew up thinking. But what if, what if instead, instead of this dichotomy, which is so clean and neat, what if there's not just two categories, but what if there's really two realities that anchor a spectrum that really we live our lives on? What if the reality of things when it comes to belief and unbelief, what if they really exist along a line, a spectrum? And along this spectrum that let's just call it life, that there's a pendulum and sometimes we're swinging towards belief and sometimes we're swinging towards unbelief. Sometimes we're moving in that direction, sometimes we're moving in this direction. Sometimes we identify more here, sometimes we identify more there. It may be based on the circumstances, it may be based on the season of life, you may be a college student, a high school student, you know, an adult, and, and because of whatever's going on, because of whatever information is in front of you, you know, you identify here, you identify there, and you're kind of moving along. And it's a vacillation. We kind of vacillate along the spectrum. And it's different at different times and places. And all along the spectrum, we end up encountering doubt. Doubt's just part of it. It's inescapable, it's inevitable. And there's times that we have various degrees of doubt. Sometimes it's strong and it's fierce, it's minimal, it's manageable. Sometimes it's troublesome and it's terrifying. Sometimes we have various degrees of belief and unbelief. But what if, what if, what if, what if? What if there are times when the spectrum tightens and belief is not all the way over here and unbelief is not all the way over there. What if sometimes that spectrum shrinks? And what if it's possible for belief and unbelief to exist at the same time, at the same point along the spectrum in your life? What if they can converge in one moment, one season of your life and mine? What if sometimes life looks like this? What if sometimes our belief and our unbelief, it seems to be overlapping at the same time? That, that we are believing, but yet a part of us is unbelieving at the same time. We believe, but uh, over here, I'm not sure if I do. And it seems like a contradiction, but, but it, it's, it's not a contradiction. It, it's what it really is. It's an excruciating tension that many of us have lived in and lived through and deal with from time to time. It's a tension between belief and unbelief. It's like we're pulled in two different directions. I believe, but I, I'm not sure. It's like, I, 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 I believe that I wanna believe, but I'm not sure that I can. It's like, yeah, it makes sense. All this stuff makes sense, but I still have my objections. And it's like pulling us in two different directions. There's a story in Mark chapter nine, Mark who wrote one of the biographies of Jesus and his, his source of information was the apostle Peter. 
And Mark wrote a story about a frantic father who had a sick child. Now imagine if you're a father or mother, or even if you're not, imagine what it would be like to have a seriously ill child. And the lengths that you would go for that kid, for that son, that daughter who was ill, that you would be willing to do anything, to go to any lengths, to do anything whatsoever to help this child get well. And so there's this frantic father who has this troubled, tortured son, and no one's been able to help him. And he's actually self-harming. He's throwing himself into fire. He's throwing himself into water. And he's even becoming a risk to other people. And the father's desperate, but he's heard about a man. He's heard about a man by the name of Jesus who has supposedly walked on water, calmed the storms, performed miracles, fed a whole bunch of people, thousands of people with a little bit of food, and has even raised the dead. He's heard about this. Everybody's heard about this. Jesus's popularity is through the roof. So he gets to Jesus and he tries to get to Jesus, but he runs into a little bit of a wall with his disciples and the disciples weren't really able to help the situation. And so Jesus walks up in the middle of a conversation and looks at this dad who's just troubled. I mean, he's just desperate. And he looks at this father and he says, what's going on? And he says, I've got a sick son. And if you can help us, please do. If you can help us, help us. If you can help us, help us. And Jesus looks at him and says, if, if I can help you, if I can help you. And then Jesus speaks words that many of us have heard before. Jesus looks at the father and says, all things are possible to those who believe. And Mark writes down what happens next. He says, immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, I do believe, I have faith. I, I believe he can, I believe you are who you say you are. I, I believe all the things I heard. I believe you walked on water, I believe you've been healing people. I, I believe you can do this. And he seems so confident. This seems so confident. This seems so certain at this point. It's unflinching. There, there's no wavering in that. I do believe. I do believe. But that's not all that he said. He said, I do believe. But help me overcome my unbelief. Whereas the old translation says, help thou my unbelief. I do believe but help me overcome my unbelief. And the spectrum shrinks and it converges in one moment where there is belief, there is unbelief, the lines of doubt, it's not so clear. And Mark doesn't try to clarify or explain these words because I think he knew that all of us would know exactly what he was talking about when we heard it. And he captures words, this father captures words to what many of us have experienced, but we've never put to words. He captures with his words, the struggle of faith. That if you call yourself a person of faith, if you find yourself trying to find faith, that this is the struggle, this is the tug of war. These are the words that captures the ups and downs. I believe, but I don't. Help my unbelief. I'm, 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 I, I wanna believe, but I, I'm just not sure I can. It's the ups and downs, it's like the labyrinth. It's like you get lost in the labyrinth and you're not sure if right is right and left is left, is up is up and down and down. You're not sure what is good and what's not. It's like, I, I believe I, I, I don't. And it's this place that we've all felt a part of, that we've all felt trapped in from time to time. 
And there's honesty in these words. This is an honest thing. I mean, because Jesus just told him, all things are possible to those who believe. And now all of a sudden he's taking the risk to say, I believe, but yet I don't. There's vulnerability in these words. There's a prayer in these words. Lord, I believe that's a confession, but help me overcome my unbelief. That's a prayer. That's a request. This is the tension of being finite and trying to understand the infinite. This is the earnest desire to want to believe that God is good, but we live in a world so full of evil. This is the pendulum that gets stuck in those moments where belief and unbelief converge. I believe that help me with my unbelief. This is the wrestling match that some of us have felt. And we thought, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my faith. There's some, I must not be a person of faith. I must not be a Christian. This is something that it's just not one isolated incident. This is something that I, I could spend all day. I'm not going to, aren't you glad? But there's all kinds of examples of the scripture, in, throughout the scriptures of this. David, you know, most people have heard of King David. Listen to what David says. Listen and watch how these two worlds converge at one time. He says, oh Lord, how long will you forget me? I know you've said that you wouldn't, but it sure feels like it. I, I'm not sure you haven't. I know you promised me you wouldn't, but forever? How long will you look the other way? You're supposed to be good, but you don't feel good. Everything that's going on in my life right now is telling me something different. I, I'm doubting you. This is, this is laced with unbelief. This is doubt run amok. How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? So unbelief has crowded into the moment, but listen to what he says just, just a few breaths later. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. It's like, what? There's belief and there's unbelief, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. When? In the past. And this is really important. David, this man after God's own heart, who's struggling with belief and unbelief all at the same moment. He goes back, even though he has unanswered questions about the present, he goes back. He investigates. He gets curious. He gets concerned. He goes back over the story of his own life and the story of his own people. And he combs through the past to look for evidence. Because in evidence, in information, in evidence, we don't find faith. But in evidence, we find a reason for faith. And that's what he finds. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, his city, his beloved city of Jerusalem, had been invaded by the Babylonians, 586 B.C., they come in, they pillage and plunder the whole city. They burn it to the ground. They take thousands as slaves of war. And you can read about it in Lamentations. Jeremiah's walking through the city and everything's burning. The temple's destroyed, the walls are destroyed, homes are destroyed, he's homeless. He sees men and women and boys and girls, children dead in the streets. Yesterday, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of 9-11 in our country. And, and, and if you did what I did, you, you were probably a bit captivated by all the, the shows and the documentaries and, and to go back and to remember the, the, the horror and the carnage and the tragedy. And 
This moment for Jeremiah was the worst moment of his life. Children dead on the streets and he walks through and he's, he's angry with God. He, he's doubting God. He says, God, if, if you're there, if you're good, how does this even happen? How do children, how do innocent children lie dead on the street? How are babies starving to death because their mothers are dead and there's no milk for them? God, if you're, how, how do you explain this, God? How do you do this? And he's got all this unbelief. He's got all of this anger. He's got all of this frustration. And then in the midst of it all, he says, yet I still dare to hope. I still dare to hope. And it's like, there's unbelief and now belief is crowding in and says, I dare to hope. And then he says, because I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercy begins afresh each morning. And he does what David does. He comes back through the story of God's people and he finds the promises that God made and God kept and the things that God said would be true that became true. And in that information, in those facts, he found evidence. But in the evidence, he didn't find faith, but in the evidence, he found a reason. Same was true for John the baptizer, cousin of Jesus. Guy who baptized Jesus, who said, hey, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then fortunes change. He went from being a celebrity to a prisoner. And as he's in prison, he's there for 547 days, and guess who never comes to visit him? No, not once. Jesus. Now, it's one thing to get a little snubbed at the preacher when he doesn't show up. But what do you do when Jesus doesn't show up? What do you do when you're the cousin? What do you do when you had special access? What do you do when you were the one who baptized and announced him to the world and Jesus has seemingly forgotten you? In the circumstances of being in prison, John, his, his faith begins to crack. The underpinnings of his faith seemingly feels like it's buckling. And so doubt rushes in and the spectrum converges and all of a sudden, What used to be a conviction for John becomes a question and he sends two of his friends and he says, you gotta go find Jesus. You gotta go ask him a question and go ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? God, ask him if he's really who I thought he was because I don't think he is who I thought he was. This doesn't look like I thought it was gonna look so I don't think he must be who I thought he was. I'm a bit embarrassed. I said it in front of everybody, but I'm not so sure anymore. But believe in unbelief, enough to say, go ask. I'm curious, I'm concerned. I'm not just gonna walk away, I'm gonna gonna ask. So they go to Jesus and Jesus replies to the two guys and says, I want you to go back to John and tell him what you hear and see. What you hear and see. I want you to take him back information. Jesus didn't get mad at John. Matter of fact, when the two men walked off in a few minutes, he looked at his disciples and said, there's nobody ever been born of woman who is greater than John the Baptist. And he's having a crisis of faith. He says, I want you to go back and tell them, tell him about the blind who are seeing, the deaf who are hearing, and the dead that are being raised to life. I want you to go back and give him a testimony so he can hear the evidence. Because in the evidence, he may not find faith, but in the evidence, he just might find a reason to believe. Thomas followed Jesus for three years. Jesus died on Friday, on Sunday. Now all of his friends are talking about Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive and they've seen him. And he says, I've not seen him. And I'll tell you, I love you guys, but I'm not gonna believe him. I'm not gonna believe that he was raised until I see him. You know what Thomas was saying? I'm not gonna believe without a good reason. 
Thomas has been unfortunately beat up on in sermons for 2,000 years. But all he was saying is, I'm not going to believe without a good reason. And what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up. Does Jesus chastise him? Does Jesus rebuke him? No, Jesus accommodates him and says, hey, 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 look. Look at my wounds. You know, stick, stick your finger in there if you want to. It's a little gross. I'm not sure if he did or not. But it's like, go ahead, get all the evidence that you need. Touch me, smell me, let's hang out, let's talk. Because in the evidence of seeing and hearing and touching, you will find a reason to believe because faith, Christian faith, begins with facts. And in the facts, perhaps we find a reasonable reason for faith. And I believe we do. And that's what this series is all about. That's what the next few weeks is all about. It's about understanding how faith and doubt really work, how to live in the tension of both. It's about understanding that as Christians, we have reasons, reasonable, rational reasons for believing what we believe. And this series, this series is about encouraging some of you who doubt, some of you who think, I just don't believe. It's encouraging you to ask those questions, to entertain those questions, to come back and listen, to see where the truth or the facts may lead because perhaps we'll only find the answers to the questions that bother us when we're bold enough and dare enough to listen and to ask them. This series is about Christians being ready to give an answer, to be able to articulate to our children, to our friends. This is why I believe what I believe, just not because granny told me or grandpa said it, the preacher, I love him, I believe what he said. No, but, but having a compelling reason of why. This is, this is what the leader of the early church said, Peter, and this is where we wrap it up. He said this, he said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give, everybody talk to me, the reason, the reason for the hope that you have. Because here's what Peter understood. Behind every belief, there is a reason. Behind every good belief, bad belief, true belief, false belief, behind every belief, there is a reason. Everybody has a reason for believing what they believe. It's just not always a good reason. And it may not even be the right reason. So there's always a reason behind our belief. And then Peter knew this, that it's completely reasonable to want a good reason to embrace faith. So if you have a son or daughter who's a teenager, college student, and they start asking questions, don't freak out. It's completely reasonable for someone to want a good reason to believe. It's completely reasonable. You should want a reason that's reasonable to believe what you believe. Next week, we're talking about the existence of God, why we believe God exists, the rational reasons that we believe that God exists, the facts that lead us in the direction of faith, the evidence that doesn't give us faith, that perhaps will give us a reason for faith. So I wanna to say to all of us, don't miss the benefit of the doubt. And the benefit of the doubt is it keeps you curious. It keeps you concerned. It keeps you exploring the big issues. It keeps you leaning in and listening. And if you're a doubter, if you call yourself a doubter, I'm not a believer, hey, listen, I got good news. You can, you can belong here before you even believe like we do. So just keep on coming back. I need you to stay open to the conversation. But if you think you know, if you're convinced, 
If you're 100% convinced you're right and we're wrong, the series isn't for you. But if you're open, if you realize that if you're certain of your position, there's gonna be some things you can't see and there's gonna be some things you can't hear because you just think you already know. Some of you, you call yourself a Christian and you're plagued by doubt, but you never told anybody. And you're on the verge of saying, I- I'm not even sure if I believe anymore. And you're afraid to tell somebody, you're afraid to tell your wife or your husband, you're afraid to tell your mom or your dad. And this series is for you. I don't want you to forget that the next few weeks is an opportunity for you to stay available, to stay open, to figure out why you believe what you believe, to figure out how to give a reason to somebody else and just not to go through the motions while you're plagued with doubt. I don't want that to be your story. I don't want you to think because you have doubt that you don't have faith or you can't get to faith. Because if we follow the facts, this is what I believe. Because in my moments of my greatest doubts, I have to go back and I have to revisit the reasons of why I believe. And I follow the facts And in those facts, I find the evidence. And the evidence is not where I find faith. It is the evidence that I go back to that I find my reason to keep believing. But it may be in the evidence that some of you will find the reason to start believing for the very first time. And if you'll be open and honest with open hands and open heart and an open mind, you might just discover a God who is better than you ever thought he was, bigger than you ever thought he was, and closer to you than you ever thought he was. Heavenly Father, would you do what only you can do? God, just speak to us in that way that we can't deny, that it's so silent, profound, personal, God, for those of us who struggle with doubt, I I pray that you will work in our hearts and our lives over the next few weeks. For those who are curious and concerned and open-minded to faith, I pray that they would stay so and engage in the things that we'll talk about. And I pray that in the midst of the information, in the midst of the facts, in the midst of the evidence that all of us will find our reason to either start believing or to keep believing in the face of whatever life throws at us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.